Welcome to the Journey to Pay Speaking Gigs podcast. Here we bring on guests in the speaking world to uncover how to find your voice as a speaker, get paid speaking engagements, and develop your speaking skills. I'm your host, Charles Clark, mental health and resilient speaker. And today, I'm having a conversation with best-selling author, Seth Golden. If you like what you hear today, check out the Journey to Paid Speaking Gigs Academy on my website, thecharlesclark.com forward slash apply, where you're going to learn everything that you need to know about how to create a successful speaking business. It's time to rise and thrive. Let's welcome Seth to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for doing the show. It's really generous for you to do it. I'm glad that people are listening to what you have to say. Yeah, yeah. So before we get started, let the Thrive Tribe know who is Seth Golden. And I'm, I'm referring to you as a person, you as a speaker, as an expert, and you, you know your experience. So in 1977, when I was 17 years old, uh, I heard that it was possible to make a living as a paid speaker. I didn't think there was such a thing. And when people ask, what did you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a teacher, which I get to do. And, oh, you mean I can get paid to do that? Yeah. So I ended up giving hundreds of speeches for free. And now I've given more than a 1,000 speeches for money. Uh, I've been really successful at it and super lucky. You know, I, I came from a place of privilege, but I also worked really hard to sh- figure out how to get good at it. And um, so on a good day, what I try to do for a living is solve interesting problems, notice things that people don't notice, maybe lend a hand. Um, and sometimes I get to do that on stage, at least before COVID. Now I'm mostly doing it sitting here in this room all by myself. All right. So let's take a little quick break because I always like to know what's going on in the back of, you know, you got the books. It, 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 it looks like it looks like creativity. It looks like you. So kind of like tell me about that background before I go into the, the next question. Well, so this whole thing started when, you know, I've been on Zoom for five years, but the backgrounds of people on CNN and things carefully groomed. And I was like, oh, it's nice to have uh, a lot of books by authors you like, but it's totally different to have a bookshelf filled with books you wrote. Mm. And so I just thought it would be fun. My bookshelf has always been messy. I prefer to organize it in the way my brain works as opposed to like a library. And I discovered as a marketer, you don't change things because you're tired of them. You change things because your audience gets tired of them. Mm. So Nike shouldn't change their logo and I shouldn't change my background. Wow. So I don't. Yeah. That's, 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 that's pretty amazing because I think, um, you know, what people tend to do, they, they, we want things to look all pretty. We, rather, we tend to the outside rather than tend to what's on the inside of our heart and to perfect that and make the things better. And well yeah, man, yeah, I, I definitely respect that because- you know what? Let's just keep it real. And I think during COVID, right? Like we've been exposed. Like some people, you know, you got you got your wife coming in, the dog barking. Sometimes you're in the middle of a speech. I don't know a, a meeting. Like let's just keep it real because I think in authenticity it, it creates connectivity. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. So I want to go into the in this in this part. So you you've been in the marketing space and you have over 19 best selling books, and that's incredible. So kind of tell me about that journey of the, the story of how did you get into speaking and, and when did you know that what you had to say, it mattered? Well, let's do the last part first. Anyone who's listening to this, what they have to say matters. Mm-hmm. Do not beat yourself up about the disconnect between what the market is rewarding and the quality of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So before I wasn't uh, a best-selling author, I was a book packager. And what book packagers do for a living is we discover problems 
that are too hard to solve for a single author, like almanacs, test prep books, books on gardening or whatever. And we bring the package to the publisher. Sometimes I was the quote author. Sometimes I found authors. My uh, second book was about removing spots and stains. And I found this guy who was the world expert on spot and stain removal. So I knew how to talk to publishers and I taught myself how to write. Because writing isn't talent, it's not a gift. As you've discovered, it's a skill. Yeah. The same way you learned how to run, you learned how to write. No one's born running, no one's born writing. We just decide. Mm. And I realized a long time ago that a book is a magical totem, that it's, it, it stands for something. It reminds people of something. It gives us status. Yeah. And so when I started one of the first internet companies, uh, we needed to explain to a lot of people what we did. And it was taking too many months to do it every sales call. So I wrote a book about what we were doing. I knew how to make a book. That book ended up becoming a New York Times bestseller. And it opened the door for the kind of work we were doing. And I thought, well, I'm an author now. I'm not a packager. I got something to say. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been an author off and on ever since. Wow, wow. So, so when did you know? Because I think that it happens like an aha moment. It happens like I'm on the cusp of doing something full time where I no longer have to do the secondary idea or the vision that I have for my life. But I can, I can focus on what I'm truly called to do. Well, I, I hate to be disappointing, but first of all, I don't think anyone's called to do anything. Okay. Yeah. I think that we decide what our calling is based on our analysis of the world. Like you won't see somebody who says, my calling is to make desserts using mud, sarsaparilla, and whipped cream because yeah. that, well, that's not a calling because you can't imagine it working. Mm -hmm. What happens is people see this landscape where some folks are getting on planes and talking in front of audiences and et cetera. Oh, my calling is to be a speaker. Well, you would like to be a speaker. I get that. Yeah. So then the question is, you know, will you get a chance to do it? And for me, I paid to speak for years and years. I had a publicist who got me on stage for free. Yeah. And there's a few ways to become a paid speaker. The most um, reliable way to do it, for sure, is to be famous. Mm -hmm. Get famous at something, and then they call you up and they right. say, hey, you want your <laughs> Olympic medalist? Hey, Rudy Giuliani. Hey, whatever. Come give a speech. This is really important to understand. So here's, here's the heartbreaking moment in my arc. I worked at it. I worked at it. I invented a, a different way of using PowerPoint that no one had ever done before, which is my PowerPoint slides had hundreds of pictures and no words. And everyone said, you can't do that. And I did it anyway. Yeah. And I worked at my timing and I worked at how to be on stage. And I show up at this conference and there's someone else speaking who's getting paid five times more than me. And I watch their talk and they're terrible. They're terrible. <laughs> And so the question is, what does it mean to be good mm -hmm. as a paid speaker? Well, they were better than me because they were famous. Mm. I did a speech, uh, one of the highlights of my career, with Zig Ziglar, who was just the, the godfather of the whole thing, right. and Gerald Ford, former president of the United States, mm. and Mia Hamm, the soccer player. So there were four of us there. And there were 22,000 people in the audience. And I was paid the least. And I got to tell you, I couldn't compare to Zig, but I could do a better speech than Gerald Ford in my sleep. 
Yeah. And Mia Hamm, to be frank and full respect to her, couldn't string seven sentences together. <laughs> and both of them were paid way more than me and got a standing ovation before they started to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because what were they paid for? So this is the, the key takeaway here. There's a curve with two humps in it. One hump is how many people are willing to speak for free? And the answer is a lot. Right. And then there's another curve, which is speakers who are really famous, who will help me sell tickets to my event, or who, if I tell people I got this person, will be impressed, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the two humps. And in between is a big trough. And that trough is $5,000 speakers, $10,000 speakers who are really, really good, but not famous. Yeah. And no one needs to hire those people because they got really, really good, not famous people they can get for free. Mm -hmm. So if you're showing up saying, I'm really, really good and not famous, but I want you to pay me money, that's really hard to pull off because what they pay for when they hire a speaker is taking you out of your busy, successful life to get you to interrupt it, to show up in a place where you bring status, where people go, I can't believe you got Spike Lee to stop making a movie and come to Santa Fe and give a speech. That's what they're paying for. Yeah, yeah. And so if you want to make it as a paid speaker, it's a really good idea to get good at it. I would like to think I'm good at it. Uh, you know, Bono said my TED Talk is one of the 10 best ever because I worked at it. Right. But that's not why people hire me. They hire me because there's buzz in the room because other people say, I can't believe you got Seth to come. Yeah. And so the way you do that is by doing other things in your life other. that make you that sort of unattainable get. Yeah. It's, it's the value you bring before you get to the stage correct rather than thinking that your value is you speaking on the stage correct yeah i i love the way you framed that so so for you what when you when you're on the stage what do you feel is the the biggest goal that you want to to accomplish when you're on that stage right okay so this is where it gets really cool number one the less you want a speaking gig the more likely it is you'll get it Number two, the more you charge, the more likely it is you'll get hired. So I, once I started getting paid to speak, I had already sold my internet company. So I just view getting paid to speak as a pain in the ass because I don't like getting on airplanes. I don't like leaving home. Yeah. So I limited the number of speeches I give every year. Some of the people I work with, you know, my hero, Tom Peters, at his peak was giving 160 speeches a year. Mm. I was like, nope, I'm not doing more than 25, maybe 30 no matter where they are. And if it's far from New York, I'm probably going to say no. As soon as I said that, more people wanted me to speak. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, and so yeah. yeah demand. Once, but once I get on stage, I am no longer there for the organizer. The organizer and I are even the minute I walk on stage. The minute I walk on stage, I'm there for those people in the right. seats. Right. And then everything changes. It changes to what I want is simple. I want to help people see something they cannot unsee. I want to put words on the table that a month from now and two months from now, they come up in a meeting. I want to get a note from people, not the day after I give a speech. I want to get a note from people six years after I give a speech. Mm -hmm. And that note six years later is, you might not remember what you said in Akron, Ohio that day, 
But I want to tell you what happened after that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, and I still stand by it. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. I watched an interview with you where, where you talked about we're in this revolution. And this is where, where we don't have to wait on other people to validate our ideas, our inventions, our creation. Rather, we can create those things ourselves. In the speaking industry, let, let's kind of address that within new speakers within the industry. What is kind of like your, your mindset and, and mantra when it comes to that? Okay, so I don't believe in gimmicks and I don't believe in hustle. I do believe in things being remarkable. So I'm sort of well known for writing this book. And when I wrote it, no, but no one in New York City would publish me. I was a failure. I had been kicked out of the industry. So I published it myself and I made 5,000 copies. And I only offered it to people who got the joke. The reason the milk carton worked is because people who got it in the mail left it on their desk. If you have a book on your desk, no one says anything. But if you've got a milk carton on your desk, people say, what's that? <laughs> and people didn't talk about it because they liked me. They didn't talk about it because they wanted me to succeed. They talked about it because they wanted to tell the other person about the idea. Mm -hmm. It was about them. So in the speaking world, Nobody came up faster than Tony Robbins. Nobody. And the question is, how did Tony do it? Yeah. Because Tony lifted a lot of his early material from Zig and other people. So it wasn't that he had a breakthrough content. It was he'd show up at a Holiday Inn, the cheapest place you could book a room for 100 people. And he'd be doing his speech on a Sunday. And while he was talking, his assistant took three, four bags of Kingsford charcoal outside and made a 50 foot long trench and lit it on fire. Yeah. So now you got a 50 foot long trench of burning charcoal outside. And Tony's finishing up his speech. He takes off his shoes and socks. He rolls up his pants and he says, follow me. And the people in the room are so hepped up. They walk across these burning coals, 50 feet of burning coals. Yeah. And come back into the room. Now here's the thing. If you know physics and, and physiology, you can't burn yourself. It's not about your mental state. It's about physics. You're not going to burn yourself. But you have to trust yourself enough to walk on the cold. All right, fine. So what happens on Monday? On Monday, you go back to work. And your friend says, what would you do this weekend? Thinking you're going to say, I don't know, I went to a barbecue. And you say, I walked on burning coals because Tony gave you a story. Right. And every person who walked on burning coals, every single person, told at least five people. That's good speaking. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't tell people because they thought Tony was a good guy. Right. They told people because they thought they were brave. Yeah. And they became evangelists for the shift. And then the next time someone books Tony Robbins, everyone goes, ooh, I can't believe you got him to come. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think a lot of times people forget the name of the book or you know the the the, the message well, not the message itself, but they forget the person who's carrying the message, but they will remember the message itself. So it shows us as speakers what needs to take precedence. It's it's not about us when we get on the stage, as you as you mentioned before, but what is the thing that people are going to take away with them? I, I want to hear about your your most memorable speaking experience. What what was that moment like, and where were you? I got so many. I you know. <laughs> That was a sincere I, sigh right there. <laughs> well, because 
I'm thinking really hard about not doing it ever again, about not getting on a plane. Mm-hmm. And I had a really good run, and it's exhausting and thrilling at the same time. Yeah. There was that trip I took to Australia with my friend Bernadette. She's lived in Perth at the time. When uh, we organized all the events ourselves, rented our own theater, put together the whole day, had a, a reception at the art museum in Sydney, and everything was more beautiful than the next. And I'm up there, and I'm running a seven-hour Q&A session on stage. Mm-hmm. And it's working, right? I remember when I launched my book, Lynchpin, and uh, I did, I organized my own event, 450 seats sold in New York City. And just before I walk on stage, backstage, my dear friends, Sonny, Lisa, and Jacqueline are waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even known they were going to come. Yeah. And uh, I remember... Uh, doing a gig virtually uh, in Australia where they put that little earpiece in your head, you know, this is long before this thing. And (laughs) five minutes into it, I'm going on about shrimp on the Barbie and how glad I am to be in Australia. And the voice comes on and says, "Uh, Seth, this isn't your Australia gig. It's your San Francisco gig. Your Australia gig's tomorrow. Oh. (laughs) And and I remember. How'd you become uh, it? Uh, well, you know, you just all you can do is smile and apologize. Yeah. Uh, my second TED Talk, main stage. The first TED Talk, no one knew about TED Video; it hadn't been invented yet. So you, you were only talking to three hundred people. It was easy, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it. Yeah, there's some cool people there, but there's only three hundred of them. Yeah. Second time, it's the big time, and I go on stage, and Herbie Hancock's piano was in the middle of the stage. They had forgotten to move it. I'm like. I only got 18 minutes. There's a piano in the middle. Herbie, wait, wait, wait. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't believe how slow the clock is ticking and how fast the clock is ticking at the same time. Right, right. <laughs> or you're doing, you're doing stuff and the clicker doesn't work. Or I mean, mm-hmm. or, or one other time where I, I – two things that make it really hard. Simultaneous translation – which is when you've got everyone has got headphones on and there's someone in the back reading as fast as they can what you're saying, translating on the fly, and you can hear the buzzing. But the problem with simultaneous translation is everyone laughs 30 seconds after you say something funny because they have to translate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, other people, the other people speak English. So it's all just a mess. Yeah. And um, anyway, the other problem, of course, is that it's a con- in a convention center and convention centers are a horrible place to do your work. Right. So I'm up there, and I had simultaneous translation. I'm in a convention center, and there's 3,000 people there, and there's a woman in the third row. I'm not making this up, Charles. She is on her cell phone the whole time. But she's not listening. She's talking loudly <laughs> the whole time I'm on stage giving my heart out, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. And for the first 12 minutes, I give this speech just to her. I'm because I don't memorize my speech. It's different every time. Yeah, yeah. All my lines are about, you know, I use the phrase, hang up the phone. Right? <laughs> Get back to and I'm just like aiming on and nothing. It's just bouncing off her. Yeah. And then what? And after 10 minutes, I say to myself, because you got to, again, time speeds up, time slows down. I only got 30 minutes left. I say to myself, you know what? There are 2,999 people here who are here for me. And she's here for her. Mm-hmm. How dare I steal from those people right. when, in fact, I could deliver to everybody else? And that changed my life right then. Because yeah. I was like, that's from now on. That's the way I'm going to blog. So I'm going to write my book. If you're here for me, I'm here for you. And if not, 
somebody else deserves my attention. Mm, yeah, I, I think um, what you said is spot on. You know, making sure to me, my my motto is no low love of energy around me, right? And 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 that means including myself, right? And and I can't accept other people's energy who are who aren't trying to get on that same wavelength. And so I, I definitely resonate with that. Um, I think one of my the 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 most challenging speech I ever gave had to happen during COVID, and this is this is uh this is what a, a high school, and I'm giving I'm getting ready to do my speech, and the teacher introduces me, and he's saying, "All right, guys, I want you to watch this video of the speaker that we're getting ready to bring on," and I'm like, "Oh, he's about to show my, my the the video of me running," and he ends up playing the almost like a whole six, seven minute speech that I delivered the very speech that I was getting ready to give them. And I'm like, oh man, how am I going to recover from this? And then I, that's when I was just like, you know what? I, I gotta, I gotta make up something. I gotta flow. I gotta do what, what I instinctively do, you know, like, and that's what you would kind of talk about, like the creativity, the, the space of, to be innovative. Right. And, and I was so I was troubled by that moment. I was like, okay, I can't give what I just, what he just released. What am I going to do now? And yeah. it was a perfect moment to be innovative. And uh, I think it was one of the best speeches I ever gave. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. And yeah. The, the thing that's magic about this business, other than we get unreasonable amounts of positive feedback and paid well, is the crises only feel like crises to us. Yeah. Right. So like I was given it. I almost never go to see the speakers who are on before me. But for whatever reason, I went to see this guy. I'd heard something. And the thing is, he was using nine of my slides. And if people steal my slides, that's that's cool. The but not slides. right before I go on. Because <laughs> if I use those same slides, people yeah. think I'm stealing them from him. Yeah. Yeah. He was first. So I had to like race backstage, open the keynote file, delete this, delete this, delete this. Wait, did he use that? And it just makes it fresh. It makes it real. Man, that that's real. Like the the behind the scenes things people don't know about speakers. There it is right there. So <laughs> so what, what do you feel are the top three things that are, are broken with new and upcoming speakers? The first one for sure is thinking you can hustle your way to gigs. Mm -hmm. And... On the outside, it feels so unfair because you know you're a better speaker than that person or, you know, you, this person's getting the benefit of the doubt and you deserve it. But it's important to remember the person who's booking you doesn't own the company. They're not spending their own money and they got to be able to go back to their boss and say, good news, they said yes. Yeah. And if they can't say that about you, you got to do work outside of speaking until they do, right? So that's the biggest one. Yeah. And then the second one, is all of the ways people are pushed to deal with their stage fright by memorizing their speech, super polishing it, doing that thing where they say, you got to put your hands up here like this and the, all that Dale Carnegie stuff. <laughs> if that works for you, please do it. But a lot of people can tell when you're doing it. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between being an old-fashioned stage magician with a hat and a rabbit versus someone who actually performs miracles. If you're actually going to perform miracles, don't show up in a magician's tuxedo because you give it all away when you do that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so what in the post-TED world, when people can watch the greatest speakers who ever spoke anytime they want for free, you're not going to outdo it. You cannot be better than Sir Ken Robinson, my late friend Sir Ken. You can't. 
So don't do a version of Sir Ken. Do yeah. a version of you and do it on behalf of the person in the third row who's not on the phone. Those are my two things. <laughs> Bring him back to third row. I love it. <laughs> All right, before we go, Seth, like any, any final thoughts uh, to the audience? Um, I think one thing that is worth thinking about is we all get choices about how to spend our day. And some of the things in our culture are symptoms and some of the things in our culture are causes. And I would say being a well, uh, being a successful professional speaker is a symptom. It's not a cause. First, you got to figure out what causes your ability to do that. And one thing that causes is do 150 speeches for free. But the main thing is the internet is giving you this platform for free where you can build a following. Go build the following and don't wait to get picked. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Click the follow button to be notified for more episodes. And if you're interested in learning how to overcome the struggle of stage fright, write that life story and speech, or how to become that paid speaker, enrollment is now open to the Journey to Paid Speaking Gigs Academy. Head to thecharlesclark.com forward slash apply. It's time that you speak, even if your voice shakes. I'll catch you guys on the next episode. Peace.